seated as pastor comes at this time. Just a couple of things before we get into our into the word this morning. Um, one or two more things to mention by way of prayer requests. Um, Micah did leave on Friday. He is on his way to Colorado. He stopped about halfway in Chicago, and he's spending time with uh, Barb's brother and sister-in-law. Um, and then Grandma and Grandpa were going to come up and also spend some time with them. Uh, so he's going to have lunch with them today and then continue his journey on to Colorado. So pray for safety as he goes. Also, I got a phone call yesterday from Joseph Severson. Um, and uh, they he got into a project yesterday um, that was probably, and this is the way it often works out, uh, projects that turn out to be much more involved than you thought they were going to be initially. Um, and so he's got a big gaping hole in the front of his house because he was going to change the window, thought that would be an easy job, uh, and then all of a sudden found out that whoever put the window in didn't put it in right, so there's a lot of rotting going on around, so he has to reframe everything and all that kind of stuff. So he's uh, uh, there in a bit of a bind this morning, so I'm sure they would appreciate your prayers. Uh, also, want to remind you that we have these encouragement cards uh, on the mailbox shelves out there. They're on the top, so if you want to be used by God to encourage somebody, God lays them on your heart, and you feel, hey, let me just drop them a note, let them know that we're praying. I'm praying for them. Uh, you're certainly welcome and encouraged to do that. They're like postcards, so if you want to take it home, you can take it home, you know, write them a note, and then put you know, their address on the front of it, put a stamp on it, drop it in the mailbox, and it'll go to their house, or you can put it in their, their church mailbox, which, by the way, we're working on to uh, clean up the, the stickers and the names and all that kind of stuff on it, so uh, everybody knows uh, whose mailbox is whose. We've had some changes, people move away and whatever, so it's time to, to redo those anyway. So there's no guarantee that your name will be where it was last time, uh, so make sure you check your post box there, look for your name, look for where it is. And then we have these, uh, these little uh, Crafts that Cindy made, the cross crocheted uh, in the middle of a very nicely done, uh, and it's got a little poem inside of it. So if you want to take that and give that to somebody, let them know that you're praying for them. Uh, you can use it as an outreach as well as just an encouragement. Small enough to fit inside an envelope, won't cost you any extra to mail it. Uh, so if you want to take advantage of those things, we certainly would encourage you to do so. And then, Jen, again, let me just remind you of the connection card here on your bulletin. It's perforated, so you can just fold it and tear it off, drop it in. If there's updates to the directory that you need to make for our benefit, so we can know how to get a hold of you. And, and people often call me and say, hey, Pastor, what's so-and-so's phone number? I can't get a hold of them. Uh, and so maybe the phone number's changed or whatever. So if you can fill out that, if there's a change to let us know, we'd appreciate that. Also, we would... Um, I'd love to get prayer requests from you on the connection card. You can use the back to write down whatever prayer requests you might have, uh, and we would be praying for you. I share that with our church leadership, um, and so if there's something that we can be praying for you, we certainly would appreciate knowing that and be able to do that on a regular basis for you. All right, we're going to jump back into our study in First Peter this morning. Uh, so before we do that, though, we've got to do a little bit of review because we took a break from our study in First Peter last week. We interrupted it, uh, and we talked about uh, how you and I as Christians, bye-bye, as believers should respond to 9-11, okay, the, or Patriot Day. Uh, we talked a little bit about that, and we, we just uh, reminded ourselves that we are indeed citizens of this this world on a temporary basis, but our real true citizenship is in heaven. And we're looking forward to when God calls us home, takes us home to be with him, and we live out eternity there in his presence. What a great time. What a great day that's going to be. And you know what? It's, going, it's never going to end. It's going to be for all of eternity. We get to be in the presence of our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. But while we're here on this earth, we're supposed to represent heaven because that's where our citizenship really is. Um, This God, this one true God that has provided for our redemption continues to provide for us every day of our lives. And because of that, we live in gratitude to him for all that he does 
for us. But as I said this morning, we're jumping back into 1 Peter. Um, Two weeks ago, we looked at the opening verses of chapter 1. And in those verses, we considered the glorious truth of election. Um, And, you know, we talked about election, and election sometimes is a controversial topic uh, to bring up in churches. But, hey, it's in the Bible, so we have to talk about and preach what is in the Bible as it comes up. We don't shy away from those controversial topics. You know, i got to tell you, too, those controversial topics, they're the hardest ones to preach because nobody else wants to touch those topics. Okay, if you come across a controversial topic, you look in your study Bible, there's about this much in it about that, that particular verse. You look in your commentaries, and there's not much more in your commentaries because they all know it's controversial, and if you write something that, they don't, that people don't like, they don't buy your books. So anyway, we're thankful that the Holy Spirit enables us and teaches us and helps us to understand the truth of Scripture. Just a little sideline about studying God's Word and having brought up commentaries and study Bibles. You realize that The same Holy Spirit that helps those men understand scriptures that that we benefit from reading their comments, that same Holy Spirit lives in you. And if he can help them come to the right conclusion by studying out God's word using good, sound Bible study methods, he can help you do the same thing. Okay, So don't shy away from things. Uh, I know people will tell me, Pastor, I never read the book of Revelation because it scares me because I don't know how to understand the Holy Spirit will help you. Pray about it. Ask him to give you direction. Give him guide, Give you guidance and wisdom. And then if you need help, speak to, speak to us. We can help you do that. We can help you figure out it. I mean, because you know what? There's times when I open the word of God and I read a passage and say, wow, what did that really mean? And, and so I have to delve into it. That, the passage of scripture that Barbara and I worked on uh, for our Froneo project was like that. We hadn't worked on that passage of scripture before and we started reading through it and we read through it several times and I thought to myself I'm never going to be able to understand and memorize or dwell on this passage of scripture unless I understand what God is saying in this passage so we I tore it apart for myself and Barb was doing the same thing for herself she was struggling in the different section of the passage than I was and so as we kind of came to the conclusions and understandings, we were able to understand it better and put it into practice in our lives. So it's not something that we can't do. All of us have the ability to understand Scripture because all of us have the same Holy Spirit dwelling within us. And by the way, that was not in my notes. So anyway, you see how we sometimes get off on rabbit trails, but they're good for us to be reminded of the fact that we need to be individuals who study the Scriptures. One of the things that was brought out in Gertrude's service yesterday, 97 years old. Okay, Gertrude was 97 years old. Um, and you know, sometimes we tend to think that people, when they get to be that old, uh, they just kind of put it in, in neutral mode and coast through, through their days. Her son, who's a missionary in Brazil, wrote a letter because he couldn't be here. And he said, you know what? My mom told me not too long ago, I think she was 95, that she had just finished memorizing the Beatitudes. 95 years old. You would think that, you know, we, why do I have to keep memorizing scripture at that age? Well, because the Bible tells us that we should memorize scripture. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. Okay, memorizing scripture, it's not like memorizing other things because the word of God is living, it's eternal, it's powerful, and the Holy Spirit will help us as you put it to memory. So just another little rabbit trail. I'm really going to get to the, to the message now, okay? Uh, so, so here we go. We're jumping back into our study in First Peter. Absolutely. Right. Thank you. Thank you, Cindy. All right, so here we go, jumping back into First Peter. Two weeks ago, we looked at the opening verses, and we talked about this idea of election. The need, we looked at the need for election. Some people struggle with the fact that God would choose some and not others. The real truth, though, is that we shouldn't be amazed that God would choose some and not others. The truth is we should be amazed that God would choose any of us. Because he doesn't choose based on merit. And here's the other thing that we talked about. If God didn't choose some, then guess what? None would come. Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's none that doeth good. No, not one. So there's no one who is seeking after God. 
So in order for God to have a relationship with anyone, he must choose them. He must draw them to himself. He must save them through no merit, through no decision-making process on their own. He is going to save you if he's chosen you. He's going to call you to himself. The Holy Spirit is going to work in your life and prod and convict until you reach the point where you, you confess Jesus Christ as Lord. No one's seeking after God, so we should be thankful for God's electing process. Everyone is on their way to hell. Every person who is born in this world is on their way to hell because of sin. And God chooses some to be the recipients of his great grace and abundant mercy. Why wouldn't you want to talk about that? We talked about, first of all, the person behind our election. God the Father is the one who has chosen us in eternity past to bring him to himself. We also talked about the power in our sanctification through election. You know, you and I could not grow in our relationship with Christ if God didn't choose us for that purpose. We also talked about the proof of our election. And the the proof is in the fact that we can and should be obedient to our great God. Before God chose us, before God brought us to himself, we couldn't be obedient to the things of God. In fact, we didn't even want to be obedient to the things of God. We also talked about the protection that is ours, that is ordained because of election. God is working and you and you and I, in our lives, he's protecting us, he's saving us. I should have said you and me probably, but anyway, Virginia's not here this morning. She, she would, what's that? Yours and mine. Okay, you got that, right? Yours and mine. Uh, Grammar was never one of my strong suits. But anyway, um, the protection that is ours, okay? God protects us. God keeps us. Our salvation is not dependent on you and I. And the fact that God chose us in eternity past to be one of his children means that he's never going to let us go. He's never going to lose us. He will hold me fast. We just sang it. Great truths to be reminded of in song. We also saw the provision of election, and that provision results in the followers of Jesus knowing and living in the grace and peace of God that it is indeed at work in us. So just from those first two verses of 1 Peter chapter 1, we saw uh, the great truth of election, and it's sprinkled throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament. Uh, You remember Jesus, God said, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. I chose Jacob, I didn't choose Esau. And if he didn't choose Jacob, neither one of those two brothers would have come to know Christ or to, know, to be a follower of God. So before we jump into our next section of 1 Peter chapter 1 though, let me share five practical thoughts with you about the importance and the significance of election. First of all, the truth of election is a very humbling truth. The fact that God would choose you and choose me and choose anyone is a humbling truth. Why? Because it reminds us that man and his religious efforts cannot acquire a right standing before God. Nothing that man does religiously can bring him into a right relationship with God. It's only because God chose us and brought him to himself. Secondly, election exalts God and prompts worship because it promotes the desire to give glory to him. Election promotes worship. We worship God because he chose us to be one of his. And as a result of choosing us, we are grateful to him. Ever play uh, playground sports when you were growing up? And you always chose two captains, right? Right? And how did they choose who is the captain? Well, maybe you throw a baseball bat up in the air and the person who caught it closest to the knob and could put his finger over the top of the number on the, on the bat, they, they were the first ones to choose. And after you established who was going to choose the teams, what was the next concern that you had? It didn't matter if you were a captain or if you were still waiting to be chosen. You wanted to be chosen, right? And you certainly didn't want to be the last one chosen. You want to be on the best team, okay? You want to be the one who's chosen because you know you can make a difference in that team. Guess what? God chose us. God picked us to be part of his family. So we want to, we want to give him glory. We want to give him honor. We want to live for him. Maybe, maybe you said this when you were on the playground. Pick me. I can help you win. 
Pick me. I'm the best. Well, God picked us not because we deserved to be picked or because we had any merit of our own. He picked us because he wanted to, he wanted to have a relationship with us. Another blessing of election is that it produces great joy. We just finished our study in the book of Philippians that centered around joy and the fact that God chose us to be part of his family and to spend eternity with him in heaven. That should spark joy afresh in our minds every time we think about it. We should be joyful people because God chose us to be part of his family. Election opens the door for the child of God for immeasurable spiritual blessings. God blesses us beyond our wildest imagination. Paul mentions that in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. If you want an exhilarating ride from the pages of Scripture, read those verses when you get home today. We're not going to read all of them, uh, but let me just read a couple of them to whet your appetite for this amazing, these amazing blessings that God has poured out upon us. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Did you catch that? Every spiritual blessing. In other words, justification isn't just for a few of God's children. Justification is for all of God's children. Sanctification isn't something that is that is reserved for just the elite group of God's children. Sanctification is for all of God's children. Eternal life isn't just for a handful of people that God chose. It's for all of God's children. So he has blessed us, and boy, there are so many more spiritual blessings than just those three, but he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he, what? What's that word? Chose us, elected us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Whew. Those are some pretty amazing verses to set our minds on. God has chosen us that we should be holy and blameless in him. Not because of what I've done, but it says there, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And then the fifth thing that election should remind us of and cause us to be grateful for is this. The concept of election should stir up within us a desire to be obedient and to live holy lives because of the calling God has placed on our lives. You know what God has called us to, right? He has called us to be like Christ. Whether you're a preacher whether you're a teacher in a, in a school, whether you're a nurse or a doctor or a lawyer or a laborer or somebody who's retired, God has chosen us all for the same purpose, and that is to become like Christ. You know that verse that we talk about a lot, Romans chapter 8, verse 28, and we know all things work together for good to them who are the called according to his purpose. What has God called us to? If you read on further in Romans chapter eight, he has called us to become like Jesus, to be like Christ. So as we transition into our text this morning, let me share a quote from John MacArthur. He says, when Christians ignore the doctrine of election, they fail to understand the glories of redemption. They fail to honor the sovereignty of God and Christ, and they fail to appreciate the immense spiritual privileges that are theirs. That's a very appropriate transition from the blessings that are ours because of election to our blessing God because he has chosen us to be his. And that's what we want to consider this morning. The fact that you and I should be people who bless God. You say, Pastor, what does that mean? How can I bless God? Well, would you stand with me as we read 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9, and then we'll see if we can discover exactly what that means for you and I to be blessing God. On the screen, read together if you would, please. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. 
In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love, Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning so grateful for the salvation that you have provided for us. Father, you chose us to be part of your family. What a blessing that is. We are grateful, and sometimes we don't tell you enough how thankful we are for all that you have done for us. This morning, we want to look at this passage of Scripture and understand what it means for us to bless you. And let us remind ourselves that we can only bless you because you have already blessed us. And so, Father, bless our time in your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So let me tell you from the start that we're not going to spend a lot of time in verses 7, 8, and 9 this morning. We're just going to touch on them very briefly, uh, and then we'll come back and hit those again next week. But I wanted to include them, uh, kind of the 7, 8, 9 as a preview for next Sunday. This morning we're going to start off with the one who alone is to be blessed. The one who alone is to be blessed. Now, who is that? We often think about blessing others, don't we? We bless our children, we bless our, uh, our parents, we bless others with, and how do we do that? Well, we bless them by helping care for them, by, by doing something special for them, by giving them a gift, by, by letting them know that we're thinking of them and praying for them. Sometimes uh, it's just a blessing to receive a phone call, or if you're in the younger generation, a text. Okay, and believe it or not, more people like to text now than like to talk on the phone. Okay, um, if it's important, you might as well just give them a phone call. That way, they don't miss it. Okay, and they can hear your voice. They can tell what your you know what your emotions are like somewhat from a phone call. But just being blessed to be part of another person's life. What does it mean for you and I to bless God? Well, God is the one who alone is to be blessed in the passage scripture that Paul is sharing with us this morning. And we see first of all the essence. of of the one that we are to bless. Sorry, Peter's talking about the essence of the one who is to be blessed. Peter says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know what that's telling us? It's telling us that we're to bless the one true God. And the idea of this one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has been a truth from the very beginning. Take a look with me, if you will, if you want to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 3 through 4. This passage of scripture is written uh, very early on in the history of the world. It's in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Moses wrote this. He said, he's talking about the God who called him to deliver Abraham's descendants out of Egypt. He writes this, Therefore, hear, O Israel... And be careful to observe it, that it may be well with you. In other words, Moses is telling the children of Israel, if you want life to go well, if you want things to be well for you in your life, this is something you need to understand. This is a truth that you need to grasp and put into practice in your life. That it may be well with you, that you may multiply greatly as the Lord God of your fathers has promised you. A land flowing with milk and honey. You want the promised land? You want that land that was promised to Abraham? You want to enter the inheritance that has been given to you? This is what you need to do. Hear, O Israel, and you need to believe this, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Okay, so what Moses is saying here, God is saying through Moses, is that if you want to be a follower of God, you want to be a disciple of God, you need to put God first in your life. You need to come to the understanding that God alone is the one true God. The Lord our God, Jehovah our God, is the, is the one true God. The Lord is one Jehovah is one. There's a lot to know about this one true God in this in these verses from Moses. Moses reminds us that he is God 
and that he promised certain promises to the people of Israel. Did God make promises to Israel? Yes, he did. He made very literal promises to Israel. And guess what? God has kept those promises, or he will keep those promises. And boy, there's a rabbit trail we could go down right now, right? We could talk about how God is going to uh, reestablish Israel as his chosen people, and how he's going to fulfill the promises that have not yet been fulfilled in the millennial kingdom. But we're not going to go there, okay? Because then we would spend all of our time talking about that. And that's not our goal this morning. But understand this. God has made promises to Israel, and guess what? He will keep them. If they haven't been kept yet, they will be kept, and that has a great bearing on our eschatological beliefs, why we believe that there's a literal kingdom that God will establish and rule from the throne of David. He will come back. He will touch down on the Mount of Olives. He will be the King of kings and the Lord of lords on this earth that he has created. It's not in our minds. It's not just in our hearts. It is reality. He will fulfill those promises. There was specific geographical boundaries that God gave to Abraham when he said, I will make you the father of many nations. I will give this land to you, land that flows with milk and honey. There were specific geographical boundaries that have not yet been fulfilled. He will fulfill those promises. Every promise that was made will be fulfilled. He says, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He reminds us that God declares promises to his children. And guess what? As believers in the church age, God has made promises to us. And he will keep every one of those promises that he has made to us. Because that's his nature. He has to. One of the key promises that God made to us is that we will have eternal life, that we are indeed the bride of Christ. And there will be a point in the future, and we're hoping that it's the near future, where God will say, Jesus, today's your wedding day. Go get your bride. And the rapture will happen, and we'll be caught up in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, and we shall see Christ. And we'll become the bride of Christ. What a glorious day. God makes promises and he keeps those promises. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 4 through 6, Paul talks about this one true God. He says, Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no other God but one. Verse 5 For even if there is so called gods, or gods of people's imaginations, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords. Now listen, Paul is not saying that there are other gods that are real, but there are other gods that people declare to be God. In reality, those gods are nothing but the inventions of men. He goes on in verse six, yet for us, those of us who know Jesus Christ as our personal savior, yet for us, there is one God, the father of whom are all things and we for him and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we live. We understand Paul to be saying there that Jesus is the source of our eternal life. Only the one true God can give life, especially eternal life. All life comes from God, and eternal life for the followers of Jesus also comes from God. Again, thinking about this idea of the one true God in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 6, Paul says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called, and one hope of your calling, one Lord, One faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. Boy, Paul covers so much in this one verse about the one true God. He speaks of the several ones in this passage, but we must be sure to understand that these ones are not separate things, but they're all wrapped up together into the uniqueness of our awesome triune God. In the one true God, we find amazing hope. We have, that, that, that hope is initiated by the one Holy Spirit of God, and he helps us make our great God, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of our lives. It's clear how the one true God encompasses all aspects of our lives. He's above all, through all, and in all of us. What an awesome God who has called us and brought us into his family. Thank you, God. Thank you, Jesus, for what you do for us. 
That's his essence. That's the essence of the one true God. We also see in this passage of scripture, his expression. Peter says, according to his abundant mercy. What a wonderful description of the attributes of God. Not just mercy, but what does he say? Abundant mercy. When we talk about mercy, the emphasis is on man's hopeless condition. Wretched sinners condemned to hell. That's all of us. All of us who are sitting in this room, we at one time were wretched sinners condemned to hell. If you've asked Jesus Christ to be your Savior, that's no longer your status. Your status is redeemed. We sing a song, redeemed how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. God has redeemed us through his abundant mercies. We're wretched sinners. We have no hope. There's no way out. Nothing could save us or change our miserable state but God. God is the only one who can make that change. God made it possible to change the condition that we find ourselves in as we enter this world. Did you notice that it's not just God's mercy, his, it's his abundant mercy or his great mercy, or we could even say his overflowing mercy. In other words, the mercy of God is never ending. The depth of our condition was Depth was hopeless and and, and was beyond our ability to fix. But his abundant or great overflowing mercy is even greater. In other words, the mercy of our God never runs out. Never runs out of mercy. Listen to the words of a song written and sung by three pastors. Once there was a holy place, evidence of God's embrace... And I can almost see mercy's face pressed against the veil, looking down with longing eyes. Mercy must have realized that once his blood was sacrificed, freedom would prevail. And as the sky grew dark and the earth began to shake, with justice no longer in the way, mercy came running. Like prisoners set free, past all my failures to the point of my need, when the sin that I carried was all that I could see, and when I could not reach mercy, mercy came running for me. God, expressing his mercy, extending his mercy, it came running after me. Not because I earned it, not because I deserved it, but because God in his great grace gave it to us. So what did this mercy provide for us? Well, that moves us into our next thought here this morning. The argument for blessing our God. Why do you and I bless our great God? Verses four through nine unveil for us the incredible things God has provided for us through this salvation that he planned for mankind in eternity past. We must remember that we don't start with our praise to God because of what he has done for us, but we start our praise to God because of who he is. We don't praise God because he's blessed me. We praise God for who he is. And because of who he is, that overflows into what he has done for us. So we want to answer the question, what do, why do we bless God? Why do you and I as children of God, as followers of the one true God, why do we bless him? Why do we bless God? So many even wonder if it's possible for mere man to offer blessings to God. John Piper suggests this when he talks about blessing God. An expression of praising thankfulness. These expressions properly recognize and give joyful expression to God's magnificence and his exalted status. They do not mean that we make God larger or higher. So to bless God means to recognize his great riches, strength, and gracious bounty, and to express our gratitude and delight in seeing and experiencing his mercy and love. Hmm. We bless God not to make God better. You know, when we bless others, we often do it to help them out because we know that they have a need and so we, we desire to give them something that will bless them and encourage them and meet a need that they have. God has no needs. 
We don't bless him to meet his needs. We bless him in a humble recognition of how awesome he really is, how amazing he really is. In our text this morning, Peter shares some of those ideas of God's great riches, his great strength, and his gracious bounty. It's easy to see that we are so much better off, you and I, as followers of Jesus. We are so much better off because of what God has done in our lives. And you know what? That's something that's rather unique to the God of the Bible, to the God of Christianity. So many other religions They serve their God, why? Because they fear him. And they know that in their minds that the God that they serve, if they don't fear him, he will reach out and do something mean and nasty to them. Our God doesn't do that. I mean, he can, but that's not his goal. If you're doing something that you know you ought not to be doing, God may reach out and judge you. I mean, he will judge the sin. He has to. But he doesn't, that's not, his, that's not his desire. He wants to love you. He wants you to follow him so he can pour out his blessings on you. He wants you to be obedient to him, so to walk in a, lo- a loving relationship with him so he can put his arms around you and continue to bless you in your life as you live it for him. He won't excuse sin. He won't let it go unpunished. But God's desire for his children is to bless them and to walk in sweet communion with him. There's not other gods who do that. I mean, you think of this, the, the account of, the, of the, the, the plagues on Egypt. The Egyptians worshipped those gods because they knew that if they didn't, those gods would attack them. Nebuchadnezzar's gods, they weren't, they weren't gods that loved his people and, and, and provided for his people. Those were gods who were waiting for the moment that they would step out of line so they could zap them. Now, that didn't happen because those gods don't really exist. They have no power. But that's what the inventors of those gods did to manipulate the people to serve those gods. In reality, serve the people who invented those gods. Our God created us to have a relationship with us, to love us, and to, and to bless us. And to encourage us to walk in a way that honors him. Our God is a kind God, a loving God, who longs to demonstrate his grace to us. What does Romans 5, 8 say? But God demonstrated his love toward us. And that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. There is no other God in the world ever invented that loved his people as much as our God. Who sent his son to die for our sins. That's grace and mercy, my friends. And that's found in the one true God. Peter goes on to say that um, the things that we need to bless our God for are seen in the fact that he provides an active hope or a living hope. A living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We've talked about this hope before. Today the word hope has the idea of a wish. We say things like, I hope to go to the fair tomorrow. Now, I know the fair's not on right now, but makes makes that hope a, a lot more difficult, huh? I hope to go someplace tomorrow. My mom is saying, I hope I come home today. I hope I get out of the hospital today. That remains to be seen. I see I have a missed call from her, so she's probably saying, when are you coming to get me? Okay? I hope this, I hope that. I hope my favorite sports team wins. I hope they make it to the playoffs. The word hope, though, that we find in Scripture is not a wished-based hope. It's an absolute reality. It's a certainty. Listen to the words of the writer from the book of Hebrews, chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. What is our hope? Well, the writer of Hebrews says our hope is a sure and a steadfast anchor of our soul. Hmm. I don't know about you, but... When you go out in a boat, or I go out in a boat, we used to have a boat, um, a little small boat. My brother had a boat, and he invited us to go out on the boat. Um, 
And you know what? When you get into some rough waters, you better have a, a, a good anchor. One that doesn't just, you know, kind of float along with the current, but one that is heavy enough to keep you where you drop the anchor. Having lived along the coastline for many years, we saw shipwrecks not very far from where we lived. I mean, we had this beautiful sight of Table Mountain. And then one day we woke up and we, we went down to the beach and we saw that this boat was, had run aground. There was a very egotistical captain. And they're very strict about the boats that come in close to the shoreline. And they said, uh, Don't, you can't go in so far because your anchor will not hold. Oh, I know what I'm doing. And he just happened to be an American, unfortunately. Um, but he gets in there and, and he sets his anchor and all of a sudden his anchor gives way and before he knows it, he's in about, I don't know, 100 feet from the shore and his boat is leaking and he can't get off the rocks and he's stuck. For a long time, that boat was stuck there. They started, by, uh, they started offloading everything, hoping that it would lighten the boat enough so it would come up off the rocks. That didn't work. There was talk about, you know, uh, kind of trying to maybe have a controlled explosion and get rid of the boat that way. I don't know. When we left South Africa, I think the boat was still there. There's lots of remains of boats that the captain didn't listen and their anchor didn't hold. You know what? Our hope is anchored in none other than the solid rock of Jesus Christ. We sing another song. My anchor holds. I know my anchor holds. The storms of life will not disembark our anchor, and we are grateful for that. You know, one of my favorite websites is gotquestions.org. Explains this idea of our our, our hope that is anchored. He says, Our hope-inspired encouragement is based on the finished work of Christ. As our high priest, Jesus has entered that greater, more perfect tabernacle in heaven with his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves. He entered the most holy place once for all time and secured our redemption forever. You can read about that in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. Through his life, he goes on to say, death and resurrection. Jesus Christ, get this, has won the ultimate victory over sin and death for us. Because of him, we have the promise of eternal life. Our promise is anchored in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary and secured by his resurrection from the tomb and his ascension back into glory. Our hope is a living hope because it is secured by Jesus Christ. And let us never forget all that Christ did to secure this hope. He died. But you know what? He's no longer dead. He is alive. And that makes your hope and my hope alive as well. Peter also says that we have an awesome inheritance in heaven waiting for us. Our inheritance is incorruptible, undefiled, and one that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. When we think about an inheritance, we think about something that is passed on to an heir, to a, to a descendant from a loved one who has already passed away. An inheritance is meant to be something that benefits the recipient, something that the one who has passed on is hoping will make life better for their loved ones left behind. Looking at the description of, uh, that Peter gives us, it bears out the truth that our inheritance is an awesome inheritance that has made our life so much better. Peter says that our inheritance is uncorrupted, Uncorrupted. That's the first thing he says about our inheritance. And this is a major difference between our inheritance from our great God and any earthly inheritance that we might get from an earthly family member that passes away. Whatever they leave us, whatever our loved ones may say, hey, we're leaving this for you. We want you to have this after we're gone. That's going to fade away. It's going to be used up. The money will eventually be spent. And at some point in time, it will be gone or we'll pass it on to somebody else. For you and I as children of God, our inheritance, there is no corruption. There is no end to the inheritance that our Father gives us. That word incorruptible, it means not, it means not liable to death. 
It means not subject to destruction. Peter, who would have been familiar with the inheritance promised to the Jews because he was a Jewish individual, he probably knew where his plot of ground was that was promised to his tribe. He knew, though, that the inheritance promised to the Israelite people was dependent. Dependent on what? Their obedience. When they were disobedient, what happened? When they were disobedient, what happened to their inheritance? They were kicked out of the land or somebody came in and took the land away from them. Our inheritance as followers of Christ will never be lost. Nobody can ever take it away from us. Unlike the Israelites, an earthly inheritance that came and went because of their willingness to follow God. The believer's spiritual inheritance will never be subject to destruction. Believer's inheritance is where? It's in heaven. And we're waiting to receive it. It's going to be revealed in the future. It's a glorious treasure that will never be lost. Peter says that our inheritance is undefiled. That word undefiled is, it means that it's not stained. It can't be polluted by the world. Not only is it not stained or not polluted, but here's this, it cannot be stained. It cannot be polluted. It's not even possible for the inheritance that God has for you and I to be corrupted by this world. It's not part of this world. So the things of this world don't have an effect on our inheritance. That's amazing. What a comforting thought that is. Also goes on to say, Peter says, that our inheritance is unfaded. Unfaded. We know what that word faded means, right? I brought you an example, a couple examples. This is going to show my age, okay? Because I don't even, I don't think there's anybody in this church right now that will remember this. Believe it or not, I fit into this shirt one time. Calvary Baptist. When we re-entered the softball league way back in 1988, we bought shirts. This was a very nice blue-colored shirt. It obviously didn't have holes in it, and it obviously didn't have letters missing, and the number was intact. Number 30, Willie Randolph, my favorite baseball player. Okay? This shirt has been passed down. Joshua wore it. Micah wore it. I'm, I'm guessing that Micah is the one who did this to it. Um, but anyway, this was a very nice shirt. You know what? It's faded. It's kind of been corrupted. It's, it certainly won't fit me anymore. But even if it did, who would want to wear it? It's in bad shape. While we were in South Africa, Josh's grandma and grandpa found this material. And it was hard for them because they're Cubs fans. But they found this material. They bought enough of it. They sent it to Barb and said, you can make curtains for Josh for his bedroom. He'll be the only person in Africa that has New York Yankee curtains. So we bought, they bought this material and they sent it to us. And you can see um, it's kind of old. It's kind of faced. Well, how do we know that, Pastor? Well, because... This was kept in a secure place, a safe place, and it was, it's just like it was brand new. Do you think there's a difference? Yeah. This is faded. This is not so nice. So, you'll take the faded one? What's that that say about you, Carl? His dad's a Mets fan. He wants Yankee material. Anyway, we, we, won't, we won't touch that. We won't go there, okay? Uh, Evan, right? Hey, Evan probably wants the new one, right? Anyway, we're talking about things that are not faded. Our inheritance is not faded. Our inheritance will not fade away. Uh, this concept of not fading comes from a Greek word, amaraton. Okay, and, and that word was used in Greek to describe a flower that did not wither or die. It'd be pretty amazing to have such a plant, wouldn't it? I mean, I, I've never found one like that. I buy my wife roses, and I, you know, 
after a week or so, they need to be thrown away because they're faded, the petals are starting to fall off. Uh, in fact, when we lived in South Africa, I got to the point where I said, I'm not going to buy them. I'm going to stop buying roses in a bouquet. I'm going to buy rose bushes and grow them so we'll have roses all the time. But even those roses faded and, and, and the leaves started falling off. Okay, But you know, our inheritance doesn't fade. It's not corruptible. It, it, is, it is vibrant. It is as good today as it was when Jesus defeated death on the cross and rose again. Our inheritance in heaven will never fade away. The term in this context suggests that believers have an inheritance that will never lose its magnificence. Never lose its magnificence. Well, Peter also says that our inheritance is unfallible. It's unfallible. Now, according to Microsoft Word, that's not really a word, but it doesn't bother me. It's unfallible, okay? The, Peter wants you and I to remember how secure our inheritance is. When we get an inheritance in this world, it is sub, subject to the security of this world. That can be a problem. Things are often stolen. Things are often lost. Things are often broken. And, and they fail us. But our inheritance from the Father reserved in heaven for us doesn't do that. So quite literally, our inheritance is out of this world. It's true because we have said that we are not of this world, so isn't it much more important that our inheritance not be of this world? We're going home to get our inheritance. I love the security that Peter reminds us of. I remember when I first opened my, when I opened my first bank account, it was at a credit union. And I've been stuck on credit unions ever since, by the way. But I, I went to the credit union. I opened my account. I was probably, I don't know, maybe a eighth grade or a freshman in high school. And I opened my account because I had a job. And I remember the lady at the credit union telling me that the NCUA, the National Credit Union Association, insures all deposits up to, I think at that time it was $150,000. What's that mean to me? She says to me, she says, you ever think you'll have that much money in your bank account? I said, nope. And I was right. Never have. Don't think I ever will. But she says, that doesn't matter. They insure your deposits up to $150,000. Now it's up to $250,000. Okay? Um, but you know what? If, if, if we had another Great Depression, that money would be used up so quickly, we probably wouldn't even see it. Because all the bigger places will get it before we get it. The securities of this world are very fallible. That's why we're concerned and we watch the start. Well, some people watch the stock market numbers. They watch the different numbers to say, is there a good financial projection coming or is it a bad one? Is inflation on the rise or is it on the fall? You know, we're all concerned about our financial security. You and I, our security is in heaven. Our security is kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. When Peter says it's kept by the power of God, what does he mean? Well, let me share just two examples for you. This, is a, this is reaches beyond our current setting. It goes all the way back to the Old Testament and into the New Testament. In Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 2, we read this. Now therefore our God, the great and mighty and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings and our princes and our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and on all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Our God, Nehemiah says, is a great and powerful and awesome God. What was the demonstration of God's power in Nehemiah's day? They rebuilt that wall in 52 days. You say, well, what's the big deal about that, pastor? Well, can I tell you the specs of the wall? The wall in its length was 2,496 miles. The average height, 40 feet. Well, 39.37 feet. The average thickness of the wall, eight and a half feet. The wall contained 34 watchtowers, seven main gates that would open to let people in and out, and two minor gates. 52 days! That is not a human accomplishment. That is a miracle from God. 
That demonstrates the power of the God of the Jewish people, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Only with God's help could that happen. We jump to the New Testament, and Paul writes this in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this but also in the age to come. Now, if you're not impressed by the building of a two and a half mile wall that's almost four stories tall and ten feet wide, how about raising someone from the dead? Does that impress you? Nobody else has ever done that. Nobody else could ever do that except for God. And not only did he raise him from the dead, he wasn't suffered to death again. Everybody else that God raised from the dead in the past died again, not Jesus. He's alive. He remains alive. In fact, Scripture says that the power of God brought him back to heaven and sat him down at the right hand of the throne of God, telling us that his work on earth was finished. Whew, what a great God. I got to share this, and we're going to wrap things up here. Um, But there's a a fun song on the radio right now. It's Christian radio. It's a song called Rattle. I don't know if you know it, but if you want to be encouraged, if you want kind of a pick-me-up, go home and Google the song Rattle. And, and listen to it. I'm just going to read a few of the, the parts from the song. It says, Saturday was silent. Surely it was through. But since when has impossible ever stopped you? The Saturday they're talking about is the Saturday that Jesus was in the tomb. It's impossible for somebody to raise from the Since when has impossible ever stopped you? Friday's disappointment is Sunday's empty tomb. Since when has impossible ever stopped you? This is the sound of dry bones rattling. This is the praise that makes a dead man walk again. Open the grave, I'm coming out. Maybe words of Lazarus, okay? I'm gonna live, I'm gonna live again. This is the sound of dry bones rattling. Pentecostal fire, not the religion Pentecostal, but the first day of the church. Pentecostal fire stirring something new. You're not going to run out of miracles anytime soon. Yeah, resurrection power runs in my veins too. I believe that there's another miracle here in this room. My God is able to save and deliver and heal and restore anything that he wants to. Have any doubts about this? The song goes on to say, and I love this part, just ask the man who was thrown on the bones of Elisha. Remember that man? He was dead. And they threw him in on top of the grave of Elisha. And once his body hit the bones of Elisha, poof! Bible says, sprung up out of the grave. Can you imagine being the people that thought they were throwing him into a dead man's grave? When he jumped up out of the grave, I'm not dead! Why? Because his bones touched Elijah's bones. Is there anything that he can't do? Just ask the stone that was rolled at the tomb in the garden. The sound of dead bones rattling. What activates this great power that we're talking about? Well, it's through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. That's right, faith, the same kind of faith that brought us our salvation. Salvation will be completed in the last time. Uh, Again, you and I don't secure our own salvation, God secures it for us. MacArthur says, when a believer dies, God completely and finally delivers him from the presence of sin and instantly brings him into his eternal inheritance and the heavenly presence. He makes us perfect. Wow. That, my friends, is some power. No wonder Peter goes on to talk about abundant rejoicing. He says, in this you greatly rejoice. Even though you might be suffering a little bit at the moment, you can rejoice. Why? Because you know what's coming. You know what your inheritance is. You know where you'll spend eternity. And that brings us the full achievement of our faith. And like I said, we're gonna go back next week and catch up on verses seven, eight, and nine. But I wanted us to bring it full circle. Abundant rejoicing, the full achievement of our faith. Peter says, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. What a glorious day that will be. The completion of our faith. Peter, or Paul talks about in Philippians chapter one, verse six, where he says, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but my heart's pumping.
I'm excited. Whew. What a great reminder from the Apostle Peter of what our inheritance is about. We'll finish it off next week, but what a great place for us to stop. Rejoicing in the great power of our God that has brought us salvation and assures us of deliverance through the good and the bad in this life and the promise of the life to come. Our great God and Heavenly Father, wow, we come to you this morning thanking you for who you are. You are the 